Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. How will the show go on when the headliner, Scaramouche, is fantastically injured? Raphael Sabatini, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. With us giving away so much free material during this time of the pandemic, we really need your help more than ever. Five bucks a month goes a long way right now. Thank you for doing what you can to help us stay afloat. And in case you haven't already, feel free to take advantage of our free titles. I get so happy when I see someone has downloaded the free audiobook titles, especially new customers. I try to have something free for everyone over several genres and geared for all ages. Please click on over to our free section at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and enjoy. There's a link to the free material in the description for this week's episode. App users can hear a poem from Thomas Nash, a lyric selection from his comedy Summer's Last Will and Testament, first published in 1592, during a time when the plague was still flaring up in hotspots from time to time around Europe. It's available in the Special Features section of the app. Thank you to Annie from the Join Us in France podcast, who helped with the pronunciations of the French names and phrases for this week's episode. If you're interested in France at all, you should check out her show. It's fantastic. Now for our quick personal moment. It's so fun to have creative kids. I know I talk about my kids a lot, but they're a big part of my life. My two artists, Goldie and Basil, made artwork for me for Father's Day. Seven, the Shakespearean actor, he writes poems in iambic pentameter. When the pandemic started, uh, you probably remember we, we said we're going to play through all of our games and all I can, our poor kids, they just, every night, they played games with their parents. They're just, they're troopers. But um, we still do that from time to time. We don't do it as much anymore. We're kind of good on that front. It's still a lot of fun. We love playing Dominion. And we love making kind of our own scenarios with the different versions of Dominion so we can choose the cards from all over the place and make whatever we want. It's a lot of fun. So, I mean, pandemic, that's what's going on. We're making artwork and playing games. So that's what we got going on. That's our personal moment. So here's the story so far. André Louis, a lawyer from Gavriac, is on a mission to speak out for the downtrodden, especially the poor who have fewer rights than the nobles. After speaking out in Rennes and later at Nantes, he is on the run from the law, who wished to take him to task for his harsh words. As he's hiding in a barn, he happens upon some traveling players. He joins their band as a carpenter and laborer. And now, Scaramouche, Part 4 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter 2. The Service of Thespis They were, thought André-Louis, as he sat down to breakfast with them behind the itinerant house, in the bright sunshine that tempered the cold breath of that November morning, an odd and yet an attractive crew, an air of gaiety pervaded them. They affected to have no cares, and made merry over the trials and tribulations of their nomadic life. They were curiously, yet amiably, artificial, histrionic in their manner of discharging the most commonplace of functions, exaggerated in their gestures, stilted and affected in their speech. They seemed, indeed, to belong to a world apart, a world of unreality, which became real only on the planks of their stage, in the glare of their footlights, 
good fellowship bound them one to another, and André-Louis reflected cynically that this harmony amongst them might be the cause of their apparent unreality. In the real world, greedy striving and the emulation of acquisitiveness preclude such amity as was present here. They numbered exactly eleven, three women and eight men, and they addressed each other by their stage names, names which denoted their several types, and never, or only very slightly, varied, no matter what might be the play that they performed. We are, Pantaloon informed him, one of those few remaining staunch bands of real players, who uphold the traditions of the old Italian Commedia dell'arte, not for us to vex our memories and stultify our wit with the stilted phrases that are the fruit of a wretched author's lucubrations. Each of us is in detail his own author, in a measure, as he develops the part assigned to him. We are improvisers, improvisers of the old and noble Italian school. I had guessed as much, said André-Louis when I discovered you rehearsing your improvisations. Pantaloon frowned. I have observed, young sir, that your humour inclines to the pungent, not to say the acrid. It is very well. It is, I suppose, the humour that should go with such a countenance. But it may lead you astray, as in this instance. That rehearsal, a most unusual thing with us, was necessitated by the histrionic rawness of our Leandre, we are seeking to inculcate into him by training an art, with which nature neglected to endow him against his present needs. Should he continue to fail in doing justice to our schooling, but we will not disturb our present harmony with the unpleasant anticipation of misfortunes, which we still hope to avert. We love our Leandre for all his faults. Let me make you acquainted with our company.' and he proceeded to introduction in detail. He pointed out the long and amiable Rodemont, whom André-Louis already knew. His length of limb and hooked nose were his superficial qualifications to play roaring captains, Pantaloon explained. His lungs have justified our choice. You should hear him roar. At first we called him Spavento, or Epovapti, but that was unworthy of so great an artist— not since this superb Mondor amazed the world has so thrasonical a bully been seen upon the stage, so we conferred upon him the name of Rodemont that Mondor made famous, and I give you my word, as an actor and a gentleman, for I am a gentleman, monsieur, or I was, that he has justified us. His little eyes beamed in his great swollen face, as he turned their gaze upon the object of his encomium. The terrible Rodemont, confused by so much praise, blushed like a schoolgirl as he met the solemn scrutiny of André-Louis. Then here we have Scaramouche, whom also you already know. Sometimes he is Scapin, and sometimes Coviello. But in the main, Scaramouche, to which, let me tell you, he is best suited— sometimes too well suited, I think, for he is Scaramouche not only on the stage, but also in the world. He has a gift of sly intrigue, an art of setting folk by the ears, combined with an impudent aggressiveness upon occasion, when he considers himself safe from reprisals. He is Scaramouche, the little skirmisher, to the very life. I could say more, but— I am by disposition charitable and loving to all mankind. As the priest said when he kissed the serving wench, snarled Scaramouche, and went on eating. His humour, like your own, you will observe, is acrid, said Pantaloon. He passed on. Then that rascal with the lumpy nose and the grinning bucolic countenance is, of course, Pierrot. Could he be aught else? I could play lovers a deal better said the rustic cherub. "'That is the delusion proper to Pierrot,' said Pantaloon contemptuously. "'This heavy beetle-browned ruffian, who has grown old in sin, and whose appetite increases with his years, is Polichinelle, 
Each one, as you perceive, is designed by nature for the part he plays. This nimble, freckled jackanapes is Harlequin, not your spangled Harlequin, into which modern degeneracy has debased that first-born of Momus, but the genuine original zany of the Comedia, ragged and patched, an impudent, cowardly, blackguardly clown. Each one of us, as you perceive, said Harlequin, mimicking the leader of the troop, is designed by nature for the parts he plays. Physically, my friend, physically only, else we should not have so much trouble in teaching this beautiful Leandre to become a lover. Then we have Pascariel here, who is sometimes an apothecary, sometimes a notary, sometimes a lackey, an amiable, accommodating fellow. He is also an excellent cook, being a child of Italy, at land of gluttons. And finally you have myself, who is the father of the company, very properly play as pantaloon the roles of father. Sometimes it is true I am a deluded husband, and sometimes an ignorant, self-sufficient doctor. But it is rarely that I find it necessary to call myself other than pantaloon. For the rest, I am the only one who has a name, a real name. It is Binet, monsieur. And now for the ladies— First, in order of seniority, we have Madame there. He waved one of his great hands towards a buxom, smiling blonde of five-and-forty, who was seated on the lowest of the steps of the travelling-house. She is our duenne, or mother, or nurse, as the case requires. She is known quite simply and royally as Madame. If she ever had a name in the world, she has long since forgotten it, which is perhaps as well. Then we have this pert jade with the tip-tilted nose and the wide mouth, who is, of course, our soubrette Columbine, and lastly, my daughter Climène, an amoureuse of talents not to be matched outside the Comédie Française, of which she has the bad taste to aspire to become a member. The lovely Climène, and lovely indeed she was, tossed her nut-brown curls and laughed as she looked across at André-Louis. Her eyes, he had perceived by now, were not blue, but hazel. Do not believe him, monsieur. Here I am queen, and I prefer to be a queen here rather than a slave in Paris. Mademoiselle, said André-Louis quite solemnly, will be queen wherever she condescends to reign. Her only answer was a timid, timid and yet alluring, glance from under fluttering lids. Meanwhile, her father was bawling at the comely young man who played lovers. You hear, Leandre? That is the sort of speech you should practice. Leandre raised languid eyebrows. That? quoth he, and shrugged. The merest commonplace. André-Louis laughed approval. Monsieur Leandre is of a readier wit than you concede. There is subtlety in pronouncing it a commonplace to call Mademoiselle Climène a queen. Some laughed, Monsieur Benet among them, with good-humoured mockery. "'You think he has the wit to mean it thus? Pah! His subtleties are all unconscious.' The conversation becoming general, André-Louis soon learnt what yet there was to learn of this strolling band. They were on their way to Guichon, where they hoped to prosper at the fair that was to open on Monday next. They would make their triumphal entry into the town at noon— and setting up their stage in the old market, they would give their first performance that same Saturday night, in a new canvas, or scenario, of Monsieur Binet's own, which should set the rustics gaping. And then Monsieur Binet fetched a sigh, and addressed himself to the elderly, swarthy, beetle-browed Polichinelle, who sat on his left. "'But we shall miss Felicien,' said he. "'Indeed, I do not know what we shall do without him.' "'Oh, we shall contrive,' said Polichinelle, with his mouth full. "'So you always say whatever happens, "'knowing that in any case the contriving will not fall upon yourself.' "'He should not be difficult to replace,' said Harlequin. "'True, if we were in a civilised land, "'but where among the rustics of Brittany "'are we to find a fellow of even his poor parts?' "'Monsieur Binet turned to André-Louis.' He was our property man, our machinist, our stage carpenter, our man of affairs, and occasionally 
he acted. The part of Figaro, I presume, said André Louis, which elicited a laugh. So you are acquainted with Beaumarchais? Binet eyed the young man with fresh interest. He is tolerably well known, I think. In Paris, to be sure. But I had not dreamt his fame had reached the wilds of Brittany. But then I was some years in Paris, at the Lycée of Louis le Grand. It was there I made acquaintance with his work. A dangerous man, said Polichinelle sententiously. Indeed, and you are right, Pantaloon agreed. Clever, I do not deny him that, although myself I find little use for authors. But of a sinister cleverness responsible for the dissemination of many of these subversive new ideas. I think such writers should be suppressed. Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir would probably agree with you. The gentleman who, by the simple exertion of his will, turns this communal land into his own property. And André Louis drained his cup, which had been filled with the poor vin gris that was the player's drink. It was a remark that might have precipitated an argument, had it not also reminded Monsieur Binet of the terms of which they were encamped here, and of the fact that the half-hour was more than past. In a moment he was on his feet, leaping up with an agility surprising in so corpulent a man, issuing his commands like a marshal on a field of battle. "'Come, come, my lads! Are we to sit guzzling here all day? Time flees!' "'And there's a deal to be done if we are to make our entry into Guichon at noon. "'Go get you dressed. "'We strike camp in twenty minutes, bestir, ladies, to your chaise, "'and see that you contrive to look your best. "'Soon the eyes of Guichon will be upon you, "'and the condition of your interior to-morrow "'will depend upon the impression made by your exterior to-day. "'Away, away!' "'The implicit obedience this autocrat commanded set them in a whirl.' Baskets and boxes were dragged forth to receive the platters and remains of their meagre feast. In an instant the ground was cleared, and the three ladies had taken their departure to the chaise, which was set apart for their use. The men were already climbing into the house on wheels, when Binet turned to André Louis. "'We part here, sir,' said he dramatically. "'The richer by your acquaintance, your debtors and your friends.' He put forth his podgy hand. Slowly, André Louis took it in his own. He had been thinking swiftly in the last few moments, and remembering the safety he had found from his pursuers in the bosom of this company, it occurred to him that nowhere could he be better hidden for the present until the quest for him should have died down. Sir, he said, the indebtedness is on my side. It is not every day one has the felicity to sit down with so illustrious and engaging a company. Binet's little eyes peered suspiciously at the young man, in quest of irony. He found nothing but candour and simple good faith. I part from you reluctantly, André Louis continued, the more reluctantly, since I do not perceive the absolute necessity for parting. How? quoth Binet, frowning and slowly withdrawing the hand which the other had already retained rather longer than was necessary. Thus, André Louis explained himself, you may set me down as a sort of knight of rueful countenance in quest of adventure, with no fixed purpose in life at present. You will not marvel that what I have seen of yourself and your distinguished troop should inspire me to desire your better acquaintance. On your side, you tell me that you are in need of someone to replace your Figaro, your Felicien, I think you call him, whilst it may be presumptuous of me to hope that I could discharge an office so varied and so onerous. You're indulging that acrid humour of yours again, my friend, Binet interrupted him. Excepting for that, he added slowly, meditatively, his little eyes screwed up, we might discuss this proposal that you seem to be making. Alas, we can accept nothing. If you take me, you take me as I am. What else is possible? As for this humour, such as it is, which you decry, you might turn it to profitable account. How so? In several ways. I might, for instance, teach Leandre to make love. Pantaloon burst into laughter. You do not lack confidence in your powers. Modesty does not afflict you. Therefore, I evince the first quality necessary in an actor. Can you act? Upon occasion, I think, 
said André Louis, his thoughts upon his performance at Rennes and Nantes, and wondering when in all his histrionic career Pantaloon's improvisations had so rent the heart of mobs. Monsieur Binet was musing. "'Do you know much of the theatre? quoth he. "'Everything,' said André Louis. "'I said that modesty will prove no obstacle in your career. "'But consider, I know the work of Beaumarchais, Eglantine, Mercier, Chenier, "'and many others of our contemporaries. "'Then I have read, of course, Molière, Racine, Cornel, "'besides many other lesser French writers. "'Of foreign authors, I am intimate with the works of Gozzi, Goldone, Guarini, Bibienna, Machiavelli, Secchi, Tasso, Ariosto, and Fadini. Whilst of those of antiquity, I know most of the works of Euripides, Aristophanes, Terence, Plautus. Enough! roared Pantaloon. I am not nearly through with my list, said André Louis. You may keep the rest for another day. In heaven's name, what can have induced you to read so many dramatic authors? In my humble way, I am a student of man, and some years ago I made the discovery that he is most intimately to be studied in the reflections of him provided for the theatre. That is a very original and profound discovery, said Pantaloon quite seriously. It had never occurred to me. Yet it is true. Sir, it is a truth that dignifies our art. You are a man of parts, that is clear to me. "'It has been clear since first I met you. "'I can read a man. "'I knew you from the moment that you said good morning. "'Do you think you could assist me upon occasion "'in the preparation of a scenario? "'My mind, fully engaged as it is "'with a thousand tales of organization, "'is not always as clear as I would have it for such work. "'Could you assist me there, do you think?' "'I am quite sure I could.' "'Hm. "'Yes, I was sure you would be.' "'the other duties that were Felicien's, you would soon learn. "'Well, well, if you are willing, you may come along with us. "'You'd want some salary, I suppose.' "'If it is usual,' said André Louis. "'What should you say to ten livres a month? "'I should say that it isn't exactly the riches of Peru. "'I might go as far as fifteen, said Binet reluctantly. "'But times are bad. I'll make them better for you. "'I've no doubt you believe it. "'Then we understand each other?' "'Perfectly,' said André Louis dryly, "'and was thus committed to the service of Thespis. "'Chapter Three, THE COMIC MUSE "'The company's entrance into the township of Guichon, "'if not exactly triumphal, as Binet had expressed the desire that it should be, was at least sufficiently startling and cacophonous to set the rustics gaping. To them these fantastic creatures appeared, as indeed they were, beings from another world. First went the great travelling chaise, creaking and groaning on its way, drawn by two of the Flemish horses. It was Pantaloon who drove it, an obese and massive Pantaloon, in a tight-fitting suit of scarlet under a long brown bedgown his countenance adorned by a colossal cardboard nose. Beside him on the box sat Pierrot, in a white smock, with sleeves that completely covered his hands, loose white trousers, and a black skull-cap. He had whitened his face with flour, and he made hideous noises with a trumpet. On the roof of the coach were assembled Polichinelle, Scaramouche, Harlequin, and Pascariel. Polichinelle in black and white, his doublet cut in the fashion of a century ago, with humps before and behind, a white frill round his neck, and a black mask upon the upper half of his face, stood in the middle, his feet planted wide to steady him, solemnly and viciously banging a big drum. The other three were seated each at one of the corners of the roof, their legs dangling over. Scaramouche, all in black in the Spanish fashion of the seventeenth century, his face adorned with a pair of mustachios, jangled a guitar discordantly. Harlequin, ragged and patched in every colour of the rainbow, with his leather girdle and sword of lath, the upper half of his face smeared in soot, clashed a pair of cymbals intermittently. Pascariel, as an apothecary in skull-cap and white apron, 
excited the hilarity of the onlookers by his enormous tin clister, which emitted when pumped a dolorous squeak. Within the chaise itself, but showing themselves freely at the windows, and exchanging quips with the townsfolk, sat the three ladies of the company, Climène, the Amoureuse, beautifully gowned in flowered satin, her own clustering ringlets concealed under a pumpkin-shaped wig, looked so much the lady of fashion that you might have wondered what she was doing in that fantastic rabble. Madame, as the mother, was also dressed with splendour, but exaggerated to achieve the ridiculous. Her headdress was a monstrous structure adorned with flowers and superimposed by little ostrich plumes. Columbine sat facing them, her back to the horses, falsely demure, in milkmaid bonnet of white muslin and a striped gown of green and blue. The marvel was that the old chaise, which in its halcyon days may have served to carry some dignitary of the church, did not founder instead of merely groaning under that excessive and ribald load. Next came the house on wheels, led by the long, lean Rodemont, who had daubed his face red, and increased the terror of it by a pair of formidable mustachios. He was in long thigh-boots and leather jerkin, trailing an enormous sword from a crimson baldric. He wore a broad felt hat with a draggled feather, and as he advanced he raised his great voice and roared out defiance, and threats of blood-curdling butchery to be performed upon all and sundry. On the roof of this vehicle sat Leandre alone. He was in blue satin, with ruffles, small sword, powdered hair, patches and spyglass, and red-heeled shoes, the complete courtier looking very handsome. The women of Guichon ogled him coquettishly. He took the ogling as a proper tribute to his personal endowments, and returned it with interest. Like Climène, he looked out of place amid the bandits who composed the remainder of the company. Bringing up the rear came André-Louis, leading the two donkeys that dragged the property cart. He had insisted upon assuming a false nose, representing, as for embellishment, that which he intended for disguise. For the rest, he had retained his own garments. No one paid any attention to him as he trudged along beside his donkeys, an insignificant rear guard, which he was well content to be. They made the tour of the town, in which the activity was already above the normal, in preparation for next week's fair. At intervals they halted, the cacophony would cease abruptly, and Polichinelle would announce in a stentorian voice that at five o'clock that evening in the old market Monsieur Binet's famous company of improvisers would perform a new comedy in four acts entitled The Heartless Father. Thus at last they came to the old market, which was the ground floor of the town hall, and opened to the four winds by two archways on each side of its length, and one archway on each side of its breadth. These archways, with two exceptions, had been boarded up. Through those two, which gave admission to what presently would be the theatre, the ragamuffins of the town, and the niggards who were reluctant to spend the necessary sous to obtain proper admission, might catch furtive glimpses of the performance. That afternoon was the most strenuous of André-Louis' life, unaccustomed as he was to any sort of manual labour. It was spent in erecting and preparing the stage at one end of the market-hall, and he began to realise how hard-earned were to be his monthly fifteen livres. At first there were four of them to the task, or really three, for Pantaloon did no more than bawl directions. Stripped of their finery, Rodemont and Leandre assisted André-Louis in that carpentering. Meanwhile the other four were at dinner with the ladies. When a half-hour or so later they came to carry on the work, André-Louis and his companions went to dine in their turn, leaving Polichinelle to direct the operations as well as assist in them. They crossed the square to the cheap little inn where they had taken up their quarters. In the narrow passage, André-Louis came face to face with Climène, her fine feathers cast, and restored by now to her normal appearance. "'And how do you like it?' she asked him pertly. He looked her in the eyes. "'It has its compensations,' quoth he, in that curious cold tone of his that left one wondering whether he meant or not what he seemed to mean. 
She knit her brows. You... you feel the need of compensation already? Faith, I felt it from the beginning, said he. It was the perception of them allured me. They were quite alone, the others having gone on into the room set apart for them, where food was spread. André-Louis, who was as unlearned in woman as he was learned in man, was not to know, upon feeling himself suddenly extraordinarily aware of her femininity, that it was she who in some subtle, imperceptible manner so rendered him. "'What?' she asked him, with demurest innocence. "'Are these compensations?' He caught himself upon the brink of the abyss. Fifteen livres a month,' said he abruptly. A moment she stared at him, bewildered. It was very disconcerting. Then she recovered. "'Oh, and bed and board,' said she. "'Don't be leaving that from the reckoning, as you seem to be doing, for your dinner will be going cold. Aren't you coming?' "'Haven't you dined?' he cried. And she wondered had she caught a note of eagerness. "'No,' she answered, over her shoulder. "'I waited.' "'What for?' quoth his innocence, hopefully. "'I had to change, of course, Zany,' she answered rudely. Having dragged him, as she imagined, to the chopping-block, she could not refrain from chopping. But then he was of those who must be chopping back. "'And you left your manners upstairs with your grand lady clothes, mademoiselle. I understand.' A scarlet flame suffused her face. "'You are very insolent,' she said lamely. "'I've often been told so, but I don't believe it.' He thrust open the door for her, and bowing with an air which imposed upon her, though it was merely copied from Fleury of the Comédie Française, so often visited in the Louis Le Grand days, he waved her in. After you, ma demoiselle. For greater emphasis, he deliberately broke the word into its two component parts. I thank you, monsieur, she answered frostily as near sneering as was possible to so charming a person, and went in, nor addressed him again throughout the meal. Instead, she devoted herself with an unusual and devastating assiduity to the suspiring Leandre, that poor devil who could not successfully play the lover with her on the stage because of his longing to play it in reality. André-Louis ate his herrings and black bread with a good appetite nevertheless. It was poor fare, but then poor fare was the common lot of poor people in that winter of starvation, and since he had cast in his fortunes with a company whose affairs were not flourishing, he must accept the evils of the situation philosophically. "'Have you a name?' Binet asked him once in the course of that repast, and during a pause in the conversation. "'It happens that I have,' said he. "'I think it is Parvissimus.' "'Parvissimus?' quoth Binet. Is that a family name? In such a company, where only the leader enjoys the privilege of a family name, the like would be unbecoming its least member. So I take the name that best becomes in me, and I think it is Parvissimus, the very least. Binet was amused. It was droll. It showed a ready fancy. Oh, to be sure, they must get to work together on those scenarios. I shall prefer it to carpentering, said André-Louis. Nevertheless, he had to go back to it that afternoon, and to labour strenuously until four o'clock, when at last the autocratic Binet announced himself satisfied with the preparations, and proceeded, again with the help of André-Louis, to prepare the lights, which were supplied partly by tallow candles and partly by lamps burning fish-oil. At five o'clock that evening the three knocks were sounded, and the curtain rose on the heartless father. Among the duties inherited by André-Louis from the departed Felicien, whom he replaced, was that of doorkeeper. This duty he discharged dressed in a polychinelle costume, and wearing a pasteboard nose. It was an arrangement mutually agreeable to Monsieur Binet and himself. Monsieur Binet, who had taken the further precaution of retaining André-Louis's own garments, was thereby protected against the risk of his latest recruit absconding with the takings. André-Louis, without allusions on the score of Pantaloon's real object, 
agreed to it willingly enough, since it protected him from the chance of recognition by any acquaintance who might possibly be in Guichin. The performance was in every sense unexciting, the audience meagre and unenthusiastic. The benches provided in the front half of the market contained some twenty-seven persons, eleven at twenty sous a head and sixteen at twelve. Behind these stood a rabble of some thirty others at six sous apiece. Thus the gross taking were two louis, ten livres, and two sous. By the time Monsieur Binet had paid for the use of the market, his lights, and the expenses of his company at the inn over Sunday, there was not likely to be very much left toward the wages of his players. It was not surprising, therefore, that Monsieur Binet's bonhomie should have been a trifle overcast that evening. "'And what do you think of it?' he asked André Louis, as they were walking back to the inn after the performance. "'Possibly it could have been worse. Probably it could not.' said he. In sheer amazement, Monsieur Binet checked in his stride, and turned to look at his companion. Huh, said he. Dear de Dien, but you are frank. An unpopular form of service among fools, I know. Well, I am not a fool, said Binet. That is why I am frank. I pay you the compliment of assuming intelligence in you, Monsieur Binet. Oh, you do, quoth Monsieur Binet. "'And who the devil are you to assume anything? "'Your assumptions are presumptuous, sir.' "'And with that he lapsed into silence "'and the gloomy business of mentally casting up his accounts. "'But at table over supper, a half-hour later, "'he revived the topic. "'Our latest recruit, this excellent Monsieur Parvissimus,' "'he announced, "'has the impudence to tell me that possibly our comedy could have been worse.' but that probably it could not. And he blew out his great round cheeks to invite a laugh at the expense of that foolish critic. That's bad, said the swarthy and sardonic Polichinelle. He was as grave as Radamanthus pronouncing judgment. That's bad. And what is infinitely worse is that the audience had the impudence to be of the same mind. An ignorant pack of clods, sneered Leandre, with a toss of his handsome head. "'You are wrong,' quoth Harlequin. "'You were born for love, my dear, not criticism. "'Leandre, a dull dog, as you will have conceived, "'looked contemptuously down upon the little man. "'And you? What were you born for?' he wondered. "'Nobody knows,' was the candid admission. "'Nor yet why. "'It is the case of many of us, my dear, believe me.' "'But why?' Monsieur Binet took him up, and thus spoilt the beginnings of a very pretty quarrel. Why do you say that Leandre is wrong? To be general, because he is always wrong. To be particular, because I judge the audience of Guichin to be too sophisticated for the heartless father. You would put it more happily, interposed André Louis, who was the cause of this discussion, if you said that the heartless father is too unsophisticated for the audience of Guichin. Why, what's the difference? asked Leandre. I didn't imply a difference. I merely suggested that it is a happier way to express the fact. The gentleman is being subtle, sneered Binet. Why happier? Harlequin demanded. Because it is easier to bring the heartless father to the sophistication of the Guichin audience than the Guichin audience to the unsophistication of the heartless father. Let me think it out, groaned Polichinelle, and he took his head in his hands. But from the tail of the table, André Louis was challenged by Climen, who sat there between Columbine and Madame. You would alter the comedy, would you, Monsieur Parvissimus? she cried. He turned to parry her malice. I would suggest that it be altered, he corrected. "'inclining his head. "'And how would you alter it, monsieur?' "'I? Oh, for the better. "'But of course,' she was sleekest sarcasm. "'And how would you do it?' "'Aye, tell us that!' roared monsieur Binet, "'and added, "'Silence, I pray you, ladies and gentlemen, "'silence for monsieur Parvissimus.' "'André-Louis looked from father to daughter and smiled. "'Pardie,' said he. I am between bludgeon and dagger. 
If I escape with my life, I shall be fortunate. Why, then, since you pin me to the very wall, I'll tell you what I should do. I should go back to the original and help myself more freely from it. The original? questioned Monsieur Binet, the author. It is called, I believe, Monsieur de Poussonniac, and was written by Molière. Somebody tittered, but that somebody was not Monsieur Binet. He had been touched on the raw, and the look in his little eyes betrayed the fact that his bonhomme exterior covered anything but a bonhomme. "'You charge me with plagiarism,' he said at last, "'with filching the ideas of Molière.' "'There is always, of course,' said André Louis, unruffled, "'the alternative possibility of two great minds working upon parallel lines.' Monsieur Binet studied the young man attentively a moment. He found him bland and inscrutable, and decided to pin him down. "'Then you do not imply that I have been stealing from Molière?' "'I advise you to do so, monsieur,' was the disconcerting reply. Monsieur Binet was shocked. "'You advise me to do so? You advise me, me, Antoine Binet, to turn thief at my age?' "'He is outrageous,' said Mademoiselle indignantly. "'Outrageous is the word. I thank you for it, my dear. I take you on trust, sir. You sit at my table. You have the honour to be included in my company, and to my face. You have the audacity to advise me to become a thief, the worst kind of thief that is conceivable, a thief of spiritual things, a thief of ideas.' It is insufferable, intolerable. I have been, I fear, deeply mistaken in you, monsieur, just as you appear to have been mistaken in me. I am not the scoundrel you suppose me, sir, and I will not number in my company a man who dares to suggest that I should become one. Outrageous! He was very angry. His voice boomed through the little room, and the company sat hushed and something scared, their eyes upon André Louis who was the only one entirely unmoved by this outburst of virtuous indignation. "'You realize, monsieur,' he said very quietly, "'that you are insulting the memory of the illustrious dead?' "'Eh?' said Binet. André-Louis developed his sophistries. "'You insult the memory of Molière, the greatest ornament of our stage, one of the greatest ornaments of our nation.' When you suggest that there is vileness in doing that, which he never hesitated to do, which no great author yet has hesitated to do, you cannot suppose that Molière ever troubled himself to be original in the matter of ideas. You cannot suppose that the stories he tells in his plays have never been told before. They were culled, as you very well know, though you seem momentarily to have forgotten it and it is therefore necessary that I should remind you they were culled, many of them, from the Italian authors, who themselves had culled them heaven alone knows where. Molière took those old stories and retold them in his own language. That is precisely what I am suggesting that you should do. Your company is a company of improvisers. You supply the dialogue as you proceed, which is rather more than Molière ever attempted. You may, if you prefer it, though it would seem to me to be yielding to an excess of scruple, go straight to Boccaccio or Sacchetti. But even then you cannot be sure that you have reached the sources. André-Louis came off with flying colours after that. You see what a debater was lost in him, how nimble he was in the art of making white look black. The company was impressed, and no one more than Monsieur Binet who found himself supplied with a crushing argument against those who, in future, might tax him with the impudent plagiarisms which he undoubtedly perpetrated. He retired in the best order he could from the position he had taken up at the outset. "'So that you think,' he said, at the end of a long outburst of agreement, "'you think that our story of the heartless father could be enriched by dipping into Monsieur de Poussonniac?' to which I confess upon reflection that it may present certain superficial resemblances. I do. Most certainly I do. Always provided that you do so judiciously. Times have changed since Molière. 
It was as a consequence of this that Binet retired soon after, taking André Louis with him. The pair sat together late that night, and were again in close communion throughout the whole of Sunday morning. After dinner, Monsieur Binet read to the assembled company the amended and amplified canvas of the heartless father, which, acting upon the advice of Monsieur Parvissimus, he had been at great pains to prepare. The company had few doubts as to the real authorship before he began to read, none at all when he had read. There was a verve, a grip about this story, and what was more, those of them who knew their Molière realized that far from approaching the original more closely, this canvas had drawn farther away from it. Molière's original part, the title role, had dwindled into insignificance, to the great disgust of Polichinelle, to whom it fell. But the other parts had all been built up into importance, with the exception of Leandre, who remained as before. The two great roles were now Scaramouche, in the character of the intriguing Sprigandini, and Pantaloon the father. There was, too, a comical part for Rodemont, as the roaring bully hired by Polichinelle to cut Leandre into ribbons. And in view of the importance now of Scaramouche, the play had been rechristened Figaro Scaramouche. This last had not been without a deal of opposition from Monsieur Binet. But his relentless collaborator, who was in reality the real author, drawing shamelessly but practically at last upon his great store of reading, had overborne him. You must move with the times, monsieur. In Paris, Beaumarchais is the rage. Figaro is known today throughout the world. Let us borrow a little of his glory. It will draw the people in. They will come to see half a Figaro when they will not come to see a dozen heartless fathers. Therefore, let us cast the mantle of Figaro upon someone and proclaim it in our title. But as I am the head of the company, began Monsieur Binet weakly, if you will be blind to your interests, you will presently be a head without a body. And what use is that? Can the shoulders of Pantaloon carry the mantle of Figaro? You laugh. Of course you laugh. The notion is absurd. The proper person for the mantle of Figaro is Scaramouche, who is naturally Figaro's twin brother. Thus tyrannized, the tyrant Binet gave way, comforted by the reflection that, if he understood anything at all about the theatre, he had for fifteen livres a month acquired something that would presently be earning him as many louis. The company's reception of the canvas now confirmed him, if we accept Polly Chanel, who, annoyed at having lost half his part in the alterations, declared the new scenario fatuous. "'Ah, you call my work fatuous, do you?' Monsieur Binet hectored him. "'Your work?' said Polly Chanel, to add with his tongue in his cheek. "'Ah, pardon! I had not realized that you were the author. Then realize it now!' "'You were very close with Monsieur Parvissimus over this authorship,' said Polichinelle with impudent suggestiveness. "'And what if I was? What do you imply?' "'That you took him to cut quills for you, of course. "'I'll cut your ears for you if you're not civil,' stormed the infuriated Binet. Polichinelle got up slowly and stretched himself. "'Dieu de Dieu,' said he. "'If Pantaloon is to play Rodemont, I think I'll leave you.' He is not amusing in the part. And he swaggered out before Monsieur Binet had recovered from his speechlessness. Chapter 4 Exit Monsieur Parvissimus At four o'clock on Monday afternoon, the curtain rose on Figaro Scaramouche, to an audience that filled three-quarters of the market hall. Monsieur Binet attributed this good attendance to the influx of people to Guichin for the fair, and to the magnificent parade of his company through the streets of the township at the busiest time of the day. André-Louis attributed it entirely to the title. It was the Figaro touch that had fetched in the better-class bourgeoisie, which filled more than half of the twenty-sous places and three-quarters of the twelve-sous seats. The lure had drawn them. Whether it was to continue to do so, would depend upon the manner in which the canvas over which he had laboured to the glory of Binet 
was interpreted by the company. Of the merits of the canvas itself he had no doubt. The authors upon whom he had drawn for the elements of it were sound, and he had taken of their best, which he claimed to be no more than the justice due to them. The company excelled itself. The audience followed with relish the sly intriguings of Scaramouche, delighted in the beauty and freshness of Climene, was moved almost to tears by the hard fate which through four long acts kept her from the hungering arms of the so beautiful Leandre, howled its delight over the ignominy of Pantaloon, the buffooneries of his sprightly lackey Harlequin, and the thrasonical strut and bellowing fierceness of the cowardly Rodemont. The success of the Binet troupe in Guichon was assured. That night the company drank Burgundy at Monsieur Binet's expense. The takings reached the sum of eight louis, which was as good business as Monsieur Binet had ever done in all his career. He was very pleased. Gratification rose like steam from his fat body. He even condescended so far as to attribute a share of the credit for the success to Monsieur Parvissimus. His suggestion, he was careful to say, by way of properly delimiting that share, was most valuable, as I perceived at the time. And his cutting of quills, growled Polichinelle. Don't forget that. It is most important to have by you a man who understands how to cut a quill, as I shall remember when I turn author. But not even that jibe could stir Monsieur Binet out of his lethargy of content. On Tuesday, the success was repeated artistically and augmented financially. Ten louis and seven livres was the enormous sum that André Louis, the doorkeeper, counted over to Monsieur Binet after the performance. Never yet had Monsieur Binet made so much money in one evening, and a miserable little village like Guichin was certainly the last place in which he would have expected this windfall. Ah, but Guichin, in time of fair, André Louis reminded him, there are people here from as far as Nantes and Rennes to buy and sell. Tomorrow, being the last day of the fair, the crowds will be greater than ever. We should better this evening's receipts. Better them? I shall be quite satisfied if we do as well, my friend. You can depend upon that, André Louis assured him. Are we to have Burgundy? And then the tragedy occurred. It announced itself in a succession of bumps and thuds, culminating in a crash outside the door that brought them all to their feet in alarm. Pierrot sprang to open and beheld the tumbled body of a man lying at the foot of the stairs. It emitted groans, therefore it was alive. Pierrot went forward to turn it over and disclosed the fact that the body wore the wizened face of Scaramouche, a grimacing, groaning, twitching Scaramouche. The whole company, pressing after Pierrot, abandoned itself to laughter. "'I always said you should change parts with me,' cried Harlequin. "'You're such an excellent tumbler. Have you been practising?' "'Fool!' Scaramouche snapped. "'Must you be laughing when I've all but broken my neck? You are right. We ought to be weeping because you didn't break it. Come, man, get up!' And he held out a hand to the prostrate rogue. Scaramouche took the hand, clutched it, heaved himself from the ground, then with a scream dropped back again. "'My foot!' he complained. Binet rolled through the group of players, scattering them to right and left. Apprehension had been quick to seize him. Fate had played him such tricks before. "'What ails your foot?' quoth he sourly. "'It's broken, I think,' Scaramouche complained. "'Broken? Bah! Get up, man!' He caught him under the armpits and hauled him up. Scaramouche came howling to one foot. The other doubled under him when he attempted to set it down, and he must have collapsed again but that Binet supported him. He filled the place with this plaint, whilst Binet swore amazingly and variedly. "'Must you bellow like a calf, you fool? Be quiet! A chair here, someone!' A chair was thrust forward. He crushed Scaramouche down into it. "'Let us look at this foot of yours.' Heedless of Scaramouche's howls of pain, he swept away shoe and stocking. "'What ails it?' he asked, staring. "'Nothing that I can see.' He seized it, heel in one hand, instep in the other, 
and gyrated it. Scaramouche screamed in agony until Climene caught Binet's arm and made him stop. My God, have you no feelings? She reproved her father. The lad has hurt his foot. Must you torture him? Will that cure it? Hurt his foot, said Binet. I can see nothing the matter with his foot, nothing to justify all this uproar. He has bruised it, maybe. A man with a bruised foot doesn't scream like that, said Madame over Climene's shoulder. Perhaps he has dislocated it. That is what I fear, whimpered Scaramouche. Binet heaved himself up in disgust. Take him to bed, he bade them, and fetch a doctor to see him. It was done, and the doctor came. Having seen the patient, he reported that nothing very serious had happened, but that in falling he had evidently sprained his foot a little. A few days' rest and all would be well. A few days? cried Binet. God of God! Do you mean that he can't walk? It would be unwise, indeed impossible, for more than a few steps. Monsieur Binet paid the doctor's fee and sat down to think. He filled himself a glass of burgundy, tossed it off without a word, and sat thereafter, staring into the empty glass. It is, of course, the sort of thing that must always be happening to me, he grumbled to no one in particular. The members of the company were all standing in silence before him, sharing his dismay. I might have known that this, or something like it, would occur to spoil the first vein of luck that I have found in years. Ah, well, it is finished. Tomorrow we pack and depart. The best day of the fair, on the crest of the wave of our success. A good fifteen louis to be taken, and this happens. God of God! Do you mean to abandon tomorrow's performance? All turned to stare with Binet at André Louis. Are we to play Figaro Scaramouche without Scaramouche? asked Binet, sneering. Of course not, André Louis came forward. But surely some rearrangement of the parts is possible. For instance, there is a fine actor in Polichinelle. Polichinelle swept him a bow. Overwhelmed, said he, ever sardonic. But he has a part of his own, objected Binet. A small part which Pascariel could play. And who will play Pascariel? Nobody, we delete it. The play need not suffer. He thinks of everything, sneered Polichinelle. What a man! But Binet was far from agreement. Are you suggesting that Polichinelle should play Scaramouche? He asked incredulously. Why not? He is able enough. Overwhelmed again, interjected Polichinelle. Play Scaramouche with that figure? Binet heaved himself up to point a denunciatory finger at Polichinelle's sturdy, thick-set shortness. For lack of a better, said André Louis, overwhelmed more than ever. Polichinelle's bow was superb this time. Faith, I think I'll take the air to cool me after so much blushing. Go to the devil, Binet flung at him. Better and better. Polichinelle made for the door. On the threshold he halted and struck an attitude. Understand me, Binet. I do not now play Scaramouche in any circumstances whatever. And he went out. On the whole it was a very dignified exit. André-Louis shrugged, threw out his arms, and let them fall to his sides again. You have ruined everything, he told Monsieur Binet. That matter could easily have been arranged. Well, well, it is you, our master here, and since you want us to pack and be off, that is what we will do, I suppose. He went out, too. Monsieur Binet stood in thought a moment, then followed him, his little eyes very cunning. He caught him up in the doorway. Let us take a walk together, Monsieur Parvissimus, said he, very affably. He thrust his arm through André Louise and led him out into the street, where there was still considerable movement. Past the booths that ranged about the market, they went, and down the hill towards the bridge. "'I don't think we shall pack to-morrow,' said Monsieur Binet, presently. "'In fact, we shall play to-morrow night.' "'Not if I know Polichinelle. You have—I am not thinking of Polichinelle. Of whom, then?' "'Of yourself.' 
I am flattered, sir. And in what capacity are you thinking of me? There was something too sleek and oily in Binet's voice for André-Louis' taste. I am thinking of you in the part of Scaramouche. Daydreams, said André-Louis. You are amusing yourself, of course. Not in the least. I am quite serious. But I am not an actor. You told me that you could be. Oh, upon occasion. A small part, perhaps. Well, here is a big part. The chance to arrive at a single stride. How many men have had such a chance? It is a chance I do not covet, Monsieur Binet. Shall we change the subject? He was very frosty, as much, perhaps, because he scented in Monsieur Binet's manner something that was vaguely menacing, as for any other reason. We'll change the subject when I please, said Monsieur Binet, allowing a glimpse of steel to glimmer through the silk of him. Tomorrow night you play Scaramouche. You are ready enough in your wits, your figure is ideal, and you have just the kind of mordant humour for the part. You should be a great success. It is much more likely that I should be an egregious failure. That won't matter, said Binet cynically, and explained himself. The failure will be personal to yourself. The receipts will be safe by then. Much obliged, said André-Louis. We should take fifteen louis tomorrow night. It is unfortunate that you are without a scaramouche, said André-Louis. It is fortunate that I have one, Monsieur Parvisimus. André-Louis disengaged his arm. I begin to find you tiresome, said he. I think I will return. A moment, Monsieur Parvisimus. If I am to lose that fifteen louis, you'll not take it amiss that I compensate myself in other ways. That is your own concern, Monsieur Binet. Pardon, Monsieur Parvissimus. It may possibly be also yours. Binet took his arm again. Do me the kindness to step across the street with me, just as far as the post office there. I have something to show you. André Louis went. Before they reached that sheet of paper nailed upon the door, he knew exactly what it would say. And in effect it was, as he had supposed, that twenty louis would be paid for information leading to the apprehension of one André-Louis Moreau, lawyer of Gavriac, who was wanted by the king's lieutenant in Rennes upon a charge of sedition. Monsieur Binet watched him whilst he read. Their arms were linked, and Binet's grip was firm and powerful. "'Now, my friend,' said he, "'will you be Monsieur Parvissimus and play Scaramouche tomorrow, "'or will you be André-Louis Moreau of Gavriac and go to Rennes "'to satisfy the king's lieutenant?' "'And if it should happen that you are mistaken?' quoth André-Louis, his face a mask. "'I'll take the risk of that.' leered Monsieur Binet. You mentioned, I think, that you were a lawyer. An indiscretion, my dear. It is unlikely that two lawyers will be in hiding at the same time in the same district. You see, it is not really clever of me. Well, Monsieur André-Louis Moreau, lawyer of Gavriac, what is it to be? We will talk it over as we walk back, said André-Louis. What is there to talk over? One or two things, I think. I must know where I stand. Come, sir, if you please. Very well, said Monsieur Binet. And they turned up the street again, but Monsieur Binet maintained a firm hold of his young friend's arm, and kept himself on the alert for any tricks that the young gentleman might be disposed to play. It was an unnecessary precaution. André-Louis was not the man to waste his energy futilely. He knew that in bodily strength he was no match at all for the heavy and powerful pantaloon. "'If I yield to your most eloquent and seductive persuasions, Monsieur Binet,' he said sweetly, "'what guarantee do you give me that you will not sell me for twenty louis after I shall have served your turn?' "'You have my word of honour for that,' Monsieur Binet was emphatic. André-Louis laughed. "'Oh!' We are to talk of honour, are we, really, Monsieur Binet? It is clear you think me a fool. In the dark he did not see the flush that leapt to Monsieur Binet's round face, 
It was some moments before he replied. "'Perhaps you are right,' he growled. "'What guarantee do you want?' "'I do not know what guarantee you can possibly give. "'I have said that I will keep faith with you, "'until you find it more profitable to sell me. "'You have it in your power to make it more profitable always "'for me to keep faith with you. "'It is due to you that we have done so well in Guichon. "'Oh, I admit it frankly.' "'In private,' said André-Louis. "'Monsieur Binet left the sarcasm unheeded. "'What you have done for us here with Figaro Scaramouche, "'you can do elsewhere with other things. "'Naturally, I shall not want to lose you. "'That is your guarantee. "'Yet tonight you would sell me for twenty louis. "'Because, name of God, "'you enrage me by refusing me a service well within your powers. "'Don't you think, had I been entirely the rogue you think me, "'I could have sold you on Saturday last? "'I want you to understand me, my dear Parvissimus. "'I beg that you will not apologize. "'You would be more tiresome than ever. "'Of course you will be jibing. "'You never miss a chance to jibe. "'It'll bring you trouble before you're done with life. "'Come. "'Here we are back at the inn. "'And you have not yet given me your decision.' "'André-Louis looked at him. "'I must yield, of course. "'I can't help myself.' "'Monsieur Binet released his arm at last "'and slapped him heartily upon the back. "'Well declared, my lad. "'You'll never regret it. If I know anything of the theatre, I know that you have made the great decision of your life. Tomorrow night you'll thank me. André-Louis shrugged, and stepped out ahead towards the inn, but Monsieur Binet called him back. Monsieur Parvissimus! He turned. There stood the man's great bulk, the moonlight beating down upon that round, fat face of his, and he was holding out his hand. Monsieur Parvissimus, no! Rancor. It is a thing I do not admit into my life. You will shake hands with me, and we will forget all this. André Louis considered him a moment with disgust. He was growing angry. Then, realizing this, he conceived himself ridiculous, almost as ridiculous as that sly, scoundrelly pantaloon. He laughed and took the outstretched hand. No rancor? Monsieur Binet insisted. Oh, no rancor, said André Louis. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Scaramouche, Part 4 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. If you've enjoyed this book, feel free to download some of our free audiobooks at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find a variety of longer titles available for free during the pandemic, which is far from being over. If you know anyone who could benefit from some smart entertainment, please let them know about our free stuff. They're welcome to it. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>